What do you do when a person asks you a question and you think they might not like your answer? You want to be a person who can give answers to the questions the world is asking. So when you put yourself out there, you need to be ready for anything. You need to be ready for this. People are going to ask you your opinion about today's most divisive topics. It comes with the territory. And as a Christian, you want to respond in a way that's faithful to God and winsome to that person. So how do you share what the Bible teaches about sensitive ethical issues when you know the person isn't going to like your answer? That's what I'm going to answer for you today. And the way I'm going to do that is by modeling how I do it myself, by answering three questions about sensitive topics pertaining to Christianity and what the Bible teaches about morality and ethics. This is Worldview Legacy the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedecase, and I'm here to help you build a legacy so that you, your kids, and your wife will be able to confidently articulate the questions the world is asking from the Bible, and as you do, you will see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. Learning how to find answers to difficult questions from the Bible is part of this journey, but it's not the only part. Being able to articulate those answers in a way that is clear, faithful, and not unnecessarily offensive is a skill unto itself. And both of these pieces are needed. In this episode, you're going to hear how I answered three thorny ethical questions, but you'll also hear some other voices. This is because these answers are coming from a very recent apologetics AMA that I did on the chat app Discord. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything, and when I do these, there is literally no question that is off-limits. So, if you've ever been in a situation where you felt caught off-guard or flat-footed by a question that someone has asked you about your faith, or if you've avoided a question because you didn't feel comfortable answering and then kicked yourself later for it, or if you yourself have wished that your pastor or elder would address these thornier cultural issues from the pulpit, then this episode is for you. Today, we're going to answer three questions, and those questions are, how do you share the gospel with gay and trans people? Why do Christians seem to have a commitment to liberalism? That was unexpected. And what is the Bible's stance on suicide? And each question is going to illustrate a principle to help you answer moral questions like these from a Christian perspective. So if what you hear sparks your interest and you want to discuss this more in depth, I want to let you know about our free community. There is a group where you can join over 500 others who are on the same journey towards building a legacy for their families. You'll get biblical answers to questions and other stuff to help you grow in your own understanding of theology and pass it on to the younger generation. And at the end of this episode, I'll tell you more about that group and how you can join. So here we go. This first question brought up a topic that I actually get asked about quite a lot. How would you approach evangelizing a gay or trans person? You know, everybody's different. And one of the things I love about Jesus is that he treated people as individuals. And he had this really remarkable way of really cutting to the heart very quickly. And so speaking with gay and, and trans people, I, I haven't spoken to many trans people I guess that's not true. Well, I'll say this, not many, but, um, you know, I've, I've gotten to have a, a few conversations with gay people. Um, and 
you know, what I find is that everybody has their own story. Everybody's on a spiritual journey and everybody has different felt needs, but ultimately the, the one need that everybody has is forgiveness, God's forgiveness, which only comes through Jesus Christ. And so let me tell you about the balance I try to strike. And I'm not saying I do this perfectly by any means, but I try to say what the Bible says about whatever the sin might be, homosexuality, uh, but greed, you know, lust, pride, drunkenness, um, you name it. We all have sins. And I try not to mince words when it comes to what the Bible actually teaches. But at the same time, I try to hold out the grace and forgiveness that Jesus does offer. And um, I actually have some added motivation for that this week. I had a conversation with uh, a brother who is um, a godly man, loves his family. He's got a wife. He's a dad. And he calls himself ex-gay. And talks about the deliverance that God has given him from his former homosexual lifestyle and even desires. And so, you know, things like that motivate me. Uh, but I try to keep it scriptural. I try to keep it biblical. And uh, I try to keep the gospel front and center. All right. So my answer to this first question is basically say what the Bible says about sin, keep it scriptural, but hold out the grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers. So keep the gospel front and center. And so the principle here is teach the truth, but tailor your approach. Teach the truth, but tailor your approach. You're going to teach the same message to everyone. The gospel does not change. God's morality, God's ethics do not change, but you're going to tailor the way you communicate that to fit your audience. You're not going to water down the truth. You're not going to change God's word. But look, in uh, Colossians 1.28, it says, him we proclaim, talking about Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let's break this down then. Him we proclaim, the message is the same. We're teaching the gospel, we're focusing on Christ. And we warn everyone and teach everyone. We're being good guides here. We're not going to gloss over sin. We're not going to downplay it. Sin does lead to death. Imagine somebody's car careening towards a cliff or a bridge that's out. You're going to yell at them. Hey, the bridge is out. You know, warning, warning, stop. You're going to teach them what God requires. Repentance and faith is needed for salvation. So that person driving in the car, they need to slam on the brakes. They need to turn around. That's repentance. But we're going to do this with all wisdom, Paul says there in Colossians. What does that mean? tailor your approach. Ask questions to get at where your friend, your discussion partner is coming from. Seek wisdom from God on how to communicate that truth in a way that's loving, that seems loving. You know, it's not unnecessarily offensive. And if you want wisdom for this, ask God. God actually promises to give you that wisdom. In James 1.5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, Teach and tailor. Teach the truth and tailor your approach. And this is true for your own kids too. You're going to communicate biblical truth differently to a three-year-old than to a 13-year-old or a 33-year-old. So teach and tailor. Now, I learned a lot about evangelizing gay people in my discussion with Sam Alberry, and you can learn more about how to evangelize your gay neighbor with that episode. Just go back and search the feed for Sam Alberry. 
Now, on to the next question, and I will say this one really caught me by surprise. It's accusing Christians of having a liberal bent, a pre-commitment to liberalism. Again, this was really surprising because most people that I encounter accuse Christians of being too conservative or too right-wing. This questioner, though, was coming at it from a different perspective. A majority of Christians seem to have a, a pre-commitment to liberalism that they run their faith through. What are your thoughts on that? Could you explain what you mean by liberalism and how you've seen that? So, for example, in the Bible, you see there's hierarchy, right? Both in nature and spiritual hierarchy. And um, there's distinctions between uh, different peoples and different groups of peoples. But in, in Christendom, we see this trend that seeks to remove hierarchies like that and promote egalitarianism. And so, for example, what we see right now is, you know, putting the women in uh, positions of religious authority and, and things like this, right? But this is nothing new. When you look at, um, well, before I say the next point, the uh, the argument that they say is basically that they see some sort of general progressive thrust throughout Scripture. Hmm. And I don't think you can pinpoint that. It's just, it seems to be an assumption. Now, when you look into, like, uh, the abolitionist movement, which has been attributed to Christians also, when you look at the arguments... They made the same appeals that there was a general progressive thrust, whereas if you try to look at the specifics, you don't see that. You see hierarchy and distinctions. Hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good questions, man. I don't know that I've ever been asked this one. This is this is interesting. Um, yeah. And I think you're you. You're either talking to the, the 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 wrong guy or you're talking to the right guy, depending on your point of view. Uh, I am. I have no liberal bone in my body. Um, I, uh, I I would consider myself very much conservative in terms of my theology. Um, so, you know, this the, the liberalizing trend of um, women pastors and elders, that sort of thing. I mean, I would very much stand against that and stand more in favor of a, a biblical view. Some would say that it's not biblical. I think scripture is pretty clear. But when we're talking about equality before God, you have to look at it. You have to look at it through um, maybe like an economic lens. That's not quite the right word, but I just mean the way that, that people interact with each other and work together. And then you have to look at it in sort of an ontological way. What I mean is, are we actually worth more like in our being than somebody else or worth less? And, you know, um, if you look through scripture, it's very interesting because God does have a chosen people that he, I mean, from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, straight on down through the line. You can read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God is always choosing people for his plan. The nation of Israel is a great example of that. God chose Israel to accomplish his purpose in the world, to bring the Messiah into the world. And at times in their history, that made them think, well, that that didn't make them, they, they fell into the way of thinking that they were elite, the elite of the world. And they took God's command not to intermix through marriage and uh, procreation with these other nations. They took that as sort of like a, uh, yes, we, because we're better than them and not be, not on the, on the flip side, it's because no, it's because those nations are worshiping pagan gods. We want to keep the worship of God sacred and, and separate and set apart holy. And actually, if you look at the Gentiles who were 
brought into the nation of Israel, like Ruth, for example, Rahab, they were brought in on the basis of their faith. So it's, it, it wasn't like, hey, uh, Ruth is a Moabitess. We can't let her in. It's like, no, no, no. She's got the faith. She is committed to the Lord and to his people. Same thing with Rahab. So there's no problem here. And we see the same trend in the New Testament. So what that teaches us is that regardless of ethnicity, people are literally ontologically equal in their being. Ethnicity is is an irrelevant concept when you're talking about standing before God. And that is even more true in the new covenant era, the church age, in other words, the time since Jesus, the, what would you say, the, the AD as opposed to BC era. Um, that's made expressly clear in Ephesians chapter two, where it says that God takes the only ethnic distinction that truly mattered, that between Jew and Gentile. And he says that God tore down the dividing wall of hostility, which was the law Go back and read the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah, the law. That's what kept Israel set apart. God tore that down. How did he do it? In the flesh of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, he was putting to death the old way of doing things. So in the church age, now there's only one distinction that matters, and that is, are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? Or do you belong to the kingdom of Jesus or do you belong to the kingdom of darkness? That's it. But you see, that's not a hierarchical thing. Um, it's it's positional, but it's not like everyone who's a Christian is is like therefore, you know, ontologically better. Like we're holier, we're better, we've got things more figured out. As a matter of fact, Christians are the people who understand that we need a savior. Like we are so bad that the Son of God had to die for us. That's incredibly humbling. So there's this expression that says the foot uh the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I believe that. I believe that we are equal. You look at Galatians three twenty eight. It says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, there, there are definitely passages about uh, slavery in the Bible where it says, masters, treat your slaves fairly and justly. Colossians 4.1 says that. Um, I suggest you read that in, in context. Uh, what God is doing there is he's telling people who are in a position where they had slaves, you better not abuse them. If you do, it says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's, that's a pretty clear, I don't know if you'd call that a threat, but it's, it's a reminder. Like, you better treat people well because God is gonna, you know, God is, God is watching and and God is very just and God is holy and compassionate. Um, but then you look at passages like, Exodus 21, 16, which says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Well, that right there nullifies the entire American system of slavery, which was based on man stealing. So you can see why people would want to abolish that based on scripture. Um, not to mention the, the book of Philemon, in which the apostle Paul writes to Philemon about a slave Onesimus who had run away from Philemon. Paul found him. Onesimus became a Christian. And Paul, in, again, sort of veiled, not threats, but veiled, he's leaning on Philemon. And he says, look, I I know you're going to do the right thing here. And we both know what the right thing to do is. Well, there is strong evidence from church history that Onesimus was set free. He was emancipated and, um, and actually became a leader in the church. We can't be 
totally sure on that, but it's, it's, it seems, uh, likely. Okay. So strong streak of equality of humanity going through the Bible, especially in Christ, especially as, as Christians. Now, what about the hierarchy? Well, the Bible teaches hierarchy as well. It's positional hierarchy, though. Yeah, this is the thing you have to understand. It's positional hierarchy. It's not ontological hierarchy. So, for example, there are two parents, biblically speaking, in a household. They're both not the head. The husband, the man, is the head of the household. And the Bible even says he's the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the man. And God is God the Father is the head of Christ. So there's a there's a very clear hierarchy there. Does that mean that the man lords it over the wife? No. He actually um he he rules the household, he leads his wife through self-sacrificing service. And it's like, well, have we seen that before? Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus does for the church. But is there any question in the Bible that Jesus is in charge? Absolutely not. So it's a hierarchy, but it's it's a totally counterintuitive hierarchy where, as Jesus says, whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. That doesn't mean that the authority is gone, but it radically changes our expectations of how the person in authority is going to behave. Um, the Bible does talk about slaves and masters. You know, we don't have slavery anymore, not, not legally. Thank God for that. But that does have implications for how you act towards your boss. And how your boss treats you. Um, what else? Parents and children. There's That's hierarchical. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Paul says that in Ephesians. Very hierarchical. So that being said, when we get to heaven, my kids aren't going to have to obey me. The, even when they, you know, like even like Genesis itself says, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and be united to his wife, cleave unto his wife. Well, he's left the authority of his mom and dad at that point. When you become an adult, you put childish things behind you. Um, we're, uh, the state, you know, the government, the civil magistrates, they're an authority over us, whether we think they're doing a great job or they're bungling like a bunch of buffoons. We still, we have an, a necessary allegiance to them. They're not our owners. We don't have to do everything they say. There's a lot of things they're telling us to say right now that they don't have legitimate authority to say. My personal belief. Um, but nevertheless, there is an authority there. Oh, and then the last one would be within the church. Elders do have a biblical authority over the congregation. It is not all-encompassing. It is not authoritarian. It is not totalitarian. It's, it has to be in line with Scripture. But nevertheless, there is a real authority there. And we're told, if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're told to listen and actually obey our elders because they're keeping watch over our souls. All right, this question was so unexpected that I had to begin my answer with a clarifying question. What do you mean by liberalism? You know, I just didn't expect to get this objection. And this is a really important principle. Always figure out what the person means by the terms they're using. So once we established what he meant by liberalism, then I could unpack the biblical teaching about the various issues he raised. So how do we answer this kind of question? Well, there's a principle here. God's truth trumps political positions. Those on the left say hierarchy is wrong because all people are equal. Those on the right, at least a certain interpretation of the right, um, they say that hierarchy is right, is correct, because all people are not equal. Now, both of these political positions get something right and they both get something wrong. 
This doesn't mean we should be centrists or like third wayists and reject both political parties. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is God's truth must trump political positions. The Bible does teach hierarchy of position, but it also teaches that all people are equal before God. The Bible does teach equality, but it doesn't teach that hierarchy is bad. Because we have to look at, at each position on its own and compare it to what scripture teaches. So what does scripture teach? Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true, even though everyone were a liar. In context, this verse is talking about ethnically Jewish people and how the fact that some of them did not have faith does not nullify the faithfulness of God. They were part of a nation, part of a system, but they didn't follow God's requirements in that system. Does that mean that the system itself is bunk, that we should just throw it out? No, God's plan is still true. God's word is true. God is true, even if people misapply God's uh, rules for that system or they don't obey God's rules in that system. How does that apply here? Well, the question about hierarchies seem to come from this position rooted in a faulty assumption that some people are actually higher or better than others, sort of ontologically speaking. That wrong assumption may make some want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, let's get rid of all hierarchies. Well, this would nullify God's faithfulness as it were, because the system itself was created by our faithful God. Hierarchy is established by God. Leadership is established by God. Instead, what we ought to do is judge the system by God's word, by God's plan, and adapt our understanding based on God's word based on scripture. God's word is right, even if we get it wrong. So that principle again is God's truth trumps political positions. So how did I get to this answer? I will say I've been influenced by sermons that I've heard over the years that have taught and emphasized the, you know, the Gentile elements of Christ's genealogy. So Rahab, Ruth, the the principle there, the deeper truth that's being communicated is the Gentiles who sort of definitionally were excluded from the family of God, the kingdom of God, could be brought in by their faith. And we do see that kind of faith in Rahab and in Ruth. So that communicates the equality of the different ethnicities. I was also influenced here by C.R. Wiley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. I'm going to link to that in the show notes, but it talks a lot about the husband's and the father's role in the household and how it is of cosmic importance. I will also say that studying New Covenant theology has really brought my attention to Ephesians 2 a lot. This is where God says that the law, which was the dividing line between Jew and Gentile, has been abolished by the death of Christ. So that's super important and communicates quite a lot about how to view different ethnicities, different uh, people who historically have had different statuses and how they are brought together as one in Christ. Now, the next question is a very sensitive one. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't really fully embrace the sensitivity of it until after I had pretty much already answered it. So you're going to hear me give a very logical, very stoic answer first. And then it's like the compassion. You're going to see the compassion kick in. When I illustrate the principle at the end, you'll see why that compassion did kick in. What is the Bible's stance on suicide? Oh, (laughs) well, um, 
Maybe let me start with the historical understanding of how the church has interpreted or has dealt with the idea of, and I do not get my doctrine from history, and I don't think you should either. That being said, the church has long understood that from conception, the beginning of life, to natural death, God owns and and is is sovereign is 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 the authority over life. So God gives life, God takes life away. What that means is we don't have the right to take life unjustly. We do. We meaning humanity do have uh, the uh, the right to execute um, capital punishment on a person who does something that forfeits their right to life. In the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, we're talking about rape. Uh, we're talking about murder. Um, things of that nature. There, there are some other uh, stipulations in the Old Covenant that we're not beholden to today um, that have to do with the, the Old Covenant law, religious law, and things like that. But in, but in terms of suicide, suicide would be the unjust taking of a human life that has not committed a capital offense. And therefore, it is morally wrong. Now, I'm telling you this um, completely, prob- probably very, I, I, might, I might be entering this the wrong way, depending on why you're asking. Um, I'm trying to give a, a sort of a, a, a logical entrance into this topic. Because what I haven't talked about so far is the state of people who are contemplating suicide. And what I what I want to say to people in that regard, um, if you're facing depression, if you're facing um, hopelessness, you know the Bible says that that if that's the state that you're in, God is the last thing you want to do is kill yourself. God is holding a hand out to you. Um, inviting you to come and be with him and be comforted. Psalm 34 verses 17 and 18 says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And you might say, well, that's talking about the righteous. I'm not righteous. In fact, I feel worthless. I know I'm not righteous. Well, guess what? According to the Bible, no one is righteous. There's only one way to be declared righteous in God's sight. And that is trusting in Jesus, the very one who is inviting you to come and trust in him. So the very act of turning to Jesus, repenting of your sins, trusting in him, that that very process is the way that God declares you righteous. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 says, but God who comforts the down the downcast comforted us. Um, there's so many. First uh, Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what do we what do we have here? On the one hand, we have this historical doctrine that says you shouldn't kill someone unjustly, and that applies to yourself. On the other hand, we have this biblical teaching that God is there for you and is inviting you gently, graciously to turn to him if you're contemplating ending your life. Um when you when you think about the biblical doctrines of heaven and hell and your eternal state, what I'll say is, if you believe in Jesus 
there is never a reason to kill yourself. And, and I mean that and there's no reason. Look, the apostle Paul longed to go and be with Jesus. He wasn't depressed, but he longed to go and be with Jesus. It, it was like he was saying, I, dying would be wonderful because I would go to heaven. Life down here is hard. That would be so great. But he goes, but I, I know that I have work to do and you need me down here. So I'm not going to go. I will stay and finish my work. Well, guess what? The apostle Paul has now been dead for close to, uh, you know, over 1900 years, something like that. He's been basking in the glow of Jesus Christ in heaven for all those hundreds and hundreds of years. And, um, and he was rewarded for that extra work that he did, sticking it out, staying faithful. Uh, we are rewarded in heaven. So if you're a Christian, there's definitely no reason to kill yourself. If you're not a Christian, you really shouldn't kill yourself because now, at that point, you think that you're ending your suffering, but in reality, your suffering has just begun. You do not want to step into eternity apart from Jesus Christ. The Bible is so clear on this. If you die without Jesus having forgiven you of your sins, washing away your sins, if you have not trusted in him, you will go to hell, a place of eternal torment forever. That is a horrible um, outcome. It's fair. You and I deserve it. Don't get me wrong. But when, when the alternative is God's grace and peace and comfort in Jesus Christ, I'm not saying your life's going to get better situationally. I don't know. But I, I, I can tell you that living with Jesus is a world apart from living without him. And um, so all that being said, suicide, not an option, biblically speaking. All right. So here's the principle at play here. Teach truth with Christ-like compassion. This is one that in my history, I have frequently gotten wrong. I'll give you an example. When I was a youth pastor, one of my students asked during a Q&A about self-harm and suicide, and my answer was, quite frankly, terrible. It was all truth, no compassion. In fact, one of our female leaders came up after I had finished my answer, and I think out of pity to me, just as much as to the students, she gave a much more compassionate response. It was the response of a counselor. It didn't scrimp on truth, and it was very compassionate and spoke to the underlying heart behind the question. And that has really stuck with me over the years. Now, this need for compassion was never lost on Christ. In Mark 6.34, we read this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. See, Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them, and he taught them. He taught them truth, but he did it with compassion. It's still truth. Jesus did not water down the truth, and neither should we, even when we're dealing with a sensitive issue like this. But the way Jesus did it and the way that we should do it is we ought to show that we remember that we're talking with real people, with real needs, real emotions, real feelings, a real heart. And these people are like sheep without a shepherd. And we happen to know the good shepherd. That is who we're trying to bring the person to. There's nothing more compassionate than leading someone to Jesus.
And actually, I want to recommend a really great resource for you. It's a website, openbible.info. It's a search engine that searches the internet for different topics and tells you Bible verses related to each of these topics. And that's really what what it boils down to. You want to answer these questions from the Christian worldview? Study the Bible. You can't study the Bible and not see the compassion of God. God is compassionate, and we are to teach God's truth with Christ-like compassion. So now we've seen how to answer sensitive moral topics as a Christian. We've heard three questions about morality answered from a Christian worldview, and we've drawn out three principles. One, teach the truth and tailor your approach. Two, God's truth trumps political positions. And three, teach truth with Christ-like compassion. You'll notice that all three principles have the word truth in them. That's because answering moral questions requires a strong handle on truth. Jesus said God's word is truth and that he himself is the truth. So you'll have to be a student of Jesus and his word, the Bible, if you want to answer these questions well. This is true for your family too. We need to be bringing our kids constantly in front of God's word and teaching them God's truth. In the show notes, I've put links to C.R. Wiley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and the website openbible.info, which I use to research answers for these AMAs in real time. Now, if you want to build a worldview legacy for your family, then join the Think Squad group now so that you can become the worldview leader that your family and church need for this moment in history. All you have to do is open up Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D. Think Squad. Answer the short membership questions, and that's all it takes. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Thanks to my friend Ellipsis for hosting my apologetics AMAs on Discord. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedicase, and is a production of the Think Institute. For more information on the Think Institute, just go to thethink.institute. <laughs>